What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. And this is episode 120-something. I never remember the episode number. Sorry about that. Uh, Episode 120-something of the podcast, so obviously not a new podcast anymore. But uh, for those of you just tuning in for the first time, uh, basically what we do here on the podcast is I uh, invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published on uh, you know something we think you guys out there would like to hear a conversation about and then hopefully at the end of the podcast or you know even in the middle of the podcast if you get your druthers about you you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read so if you like this podcast please consider giving illiteracy a five-star review at apple podcasts or wherever you listen to this show as that and also by uh sharing that with your friends because that's the uh, best way to support programming like this and my guest today is Mr. Fred Litwin, and Mr. Litwin is a marketing professional and also the founder of Northern Blues Music, a blues label that has received over 40 Blues Music Award nominations, and his work has been published in the National Post, the Ottawa Citizen, the Toronto Sun, and the Dorchester Review, among others. Uh, He is the author of Conservative Confidential, Inside the Fabulous Blue Tent, Uh, I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak, And On the Trail of Delusion, Jim Garrison, The Great Accuser. And lastly, he is the author of Oliver Stone's Film Flam, The Demagogue of Dealey Plaza, which was originally published back in January by Northern Blues Books, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Mr. Litwin, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, no problem. So, uh, before we get to the book itself, just a couple questions. So... Sure. You're uh, Canadian, obviously, as we were talking about a couple minutes ago. Yep. So are you a hockey guy at all? or? Uh... Yeah, I'm a hockey guy and a baseball guy. Okay. You, uh, um, where are you, are you from? You're from Ottawa, right? Is Well, I live in Ottawa. I was Illinois. born in Montreal, grew okay. up in Montreal, although I, I have I lived in New York City for six years. Okay, so are you a Canadians fan or Senators or? Uh, Senators fan and Senators. I'm a Blue Jays fan in baseball. Okay, you know, Blue Jays having a pretty good year. Uh, well, senators. Not, they're in a slump. They're in a slump. <laughs> yeah, senators. Not so, but they showed a little bit of promise, though. I think they're in the heading on the right direction. They got some uh, some good youth on that team, and uh, they just got to get the ownership stuff figured out. I saw. Yeah, it's a big story I, here in Ottawa. <laughs> I saw uh, Snoop Dogg make uh, an offer. I don't know how serious of an offer it was, but I guess he's part of some group that's offering to buy the senators. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting. All right, cool. And so um, you're obviously uh, a blues guy, too, So um, since you right. run a uh, blues label up in Canada. So um, how would you get into the blues, and uh, who are your – who are your uh, any uh, favorites? Well, uh, I've always been a blues fan, and, and uh, well, I was living in Singapore for a while. I ended up investing in a folk music label, and uh, I actually retired from working in 2000. Mm-hmm. And I decided uh, to set up a blues label. And uh, so I started signing up artists. And my first year, I signed up Otis Taylor nice. uh, from Denver, Colorado. And his album, White African, was up for album of the year in the, in the United States. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing first year for me. 
And so one of my big artists is uh, Watermelon Slim. I don't know if you if you know Watermelon mm-hmm. Slim. Yep. I'm Blues guy from uh, from North Carolina who now lives in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And I've we've done around nine CDs with with Slim. That's great. So uh, why don't you tell everybody the uh, uh, website or something like that so they can you know check that out too. Yeah, my website is on the trail of delusion, all one word, dot com. So on the trail of delusion dot com, and you can find links to my books about the JFK assassination. All right, cool. All right, so um, let's start with, I guess, how you got into this beat, the uh, <laughs> yep. uh, the JFK conspiracy debunking beat. Uh, obviously, um, you have a book. I was a teenage JFK conspiracy freak. So were you? Uh, I guess you were. Uh, when you were a kid, you thought that uh, there was uh, some sort of plot to kill Kennedy, uh, some sort of conspiracy, and uh, obviously uh, you don't think that now. That's right. I was really, uh, you know, I watched Geraldo Rivera's show in March 1975 when he showed the Zapruder film for the first time on American national television, and I had never seen it. I was bowled over by the back and to the left movement of JFK's head with the headshot. And that set me on a path to try and understand um, why the Warren Commission did not conclude that he was shot from the front, despite that evidence. And that led me on a wild goose chase to ultimately to doctors who would examine JFK's uh, autopsy x-rays and photographs. And they actually felt that those um, were quite uh, uh, conclusive that actually JFK was shot from behind. And uh, I said, well, if, if his backwards head movement doesn't bother the best forensic pathologist in the United States, uh, maybe it shouldn't bother me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was my first thing, at, first attempt at debunking, and it just went on from there. Yeah, so I have a, a weird sort of path to this myself. So when I was – so I'm 40. Uh, when I was a kid, I was in middle school, so I was either 12 or 13. I can't remember. So it was either – 1994, 1995, something like that, um, I got invited to this uh, program for, uh, I don't know, gifted kids or something like that uh, up in uh, New Jersey where I was uh, born and raised and um, at Montclair State University. So basically letting uh, these like middle school kids like take a couple college courses and like they could get credit for it and all that stuff. And, um, so we got to pick from like a certain, like we didn't get like the full catalog, but we got to pick, uh, you know, like certain courses. And one of them was like a course on conspiracies. So -hmm. I was like, all right, that sounds interesting. I'll, you know, check that out. And, um, so I had never, I hadn't, uh, seen the JFK film yet. I don't think, I don't remember if I did, it hadn't made any like impression on me, but this is in like the aftermath of that when all this stuff was going on, it was a pretty huge deal. So the professor, like the first thing we did in the class was like the, the really dumb conspiracy theory that uh, Paul McCartney uh, actually died in a car crash in like 1966 and was replaced by, right. uh, I remember that. by, by a guy who uh, yep. looks like him, looks exactly like him, sings exactly right like him and can like, you know, write songs like Paul McCartney. And uh, and that the Beatles had, you know, planted all these like hidden messages, codes. like codes yep. like showing that Paul was dead. So we went through all that. And then the second thing we went through uh, was the JFK stuff. And um, uh, so we went through. I mean, he basically, you know, walked us through the film. We had to read that book. Um, was it Crossroads? Uh, I think the Swire. name of the, 
Crossfire. Crossfire. Crossfire, right. Um, so we had to read that for the class, and then we went through, and he and the professor basically like debunked, uh, you know, everything in like the in the stone film, and uh, you know, like literally like brought like the the man liquor Carcano into the class, and like had everybody like, you know, see if they could do like the the three shots and uh, whatever eight nine seconds whatever it was and all that sort of stuff and um so i was always i luckily i guess i was always immune to any of that that uh kennedy conspiracy stuff and i know stuff and i know um it's something like either a strong plurality or even a majority of like people when they pull on this stuff still think that kennedy was uh killed in a conspiracy and i'm sure a lot of that has to do with the stone film and yes although, although, although it's been dropping uh since yeah. the year 2000 yeah i think um yeah i think part of that probably has to do with like the whole 9-11 truther thing and then like the, all the vaccine stuff and everything i think i don't know people well it seems like people are more i don't know just maybe they're transferring their their weird uh conspiracy thing going you know what i mean i don't know why specifically that is um but so how i uh got into the book how i found out about your book so i had like jfk the film was on like hbo max uh last year like the director's cut and i was like oh so let me you know watch that again because like i hadn't seen it probably since like the 90s and it used to be on like all the time in the 90s yeah and um and I was watching it, and I was struck by like one how great of like just like a as a of a piece of filmmaking like regard irregardless of you know all the goofy shit that you know Oliver Stone's trying to to push out, it's still like a fantastically made film. I mean it's it's edited very well. Like the cast is fantastic, uh, the script is fantastic. It's got oodles of uh, you know cameos and everything, but it's also I didn't I didn't notice this in the 90s but when I was watching now I was like my god this is maybe like one of the most homophobic films I've ever seen um and then shortly after that I uh maybe a couple months after that I had Jamie Kirchick on the podcast to talk about uh his book on uh gay life in Washington and we were discussing the um uh the JFK film and he was the one that brought up uh your book your uh your uh work your blog and uh all that stuff so um so it it's uh so luckily um like i said i've been sort of immune to all that uh the jfk conspiracy stuff and sort of immune to all like the other just to the conspiratorial thinking in general just because of that that class i took when i was you know i don't even think i was a teenager right but um but so the new, but the the JFK film itself uh, has now been. Uh, sorry, I'm rambling on here. But the new, uh, there's a new, or Stone has a newer, I guess, documentary, like a four part documentary, uh, JFK Destiny Betrayed, where he's sort of, I guess, expanding on or teasing out uh, different uh, things. I haven't seen the documentary because you have to. Um, pay for it and i don't want to like actually you know give it uh <laughs> any yeah money. there's there's 
there's there's two ver- there's two versions of the same documentary. So there's the two hour version, mm-hmm. which is JFK revisited, and there's also the four hour version, JFK Destiny Betrayed. Um, basically the same documentary. And the reason there's two versions is that is that the first version they made they could not sell to Netflix or National Geographic or any other streamers, and so they remade it into something a little smaller for to hopefully make it more sellable. They eventually got Showtime to to show it, uh, but they had trouble selling it. And, and basically, basically because of the fact checkers who were not happy with what was in the film. Yeah, you described it as in the book. I think you called it an intellectual monstrosity. The new, yeah. uh, <laughs> the, the new, and um, and the, he has a collaborator. Well, the the JFK film is uh, the original film, nineteen ninety one or ninety two, somewhere around there. Uh, that was basic. I mean, that's all about the the uh, garrison. Uh, Jim Garrison uh, trial of uh, Clay Shaw in New Orleans and that whole thing and is really based on Garrison's work. And this new film uh, is based on, or his collaborator is this guy named James DiEugenio. So tell us about who is James DiEugenio and, and uh, you know, uh, what has he managed to uh, uh Make, yeah, I'll make Oliver Stone so enthused about uh, what he's pushing. Yeah, James Diogenio is a uh, conspiracy theorist who lives in Los Angeles, and he's written a number of books over the years on the JFK assassination. And what he really, his main arguments are basically that all the physical evidence in the case has either been planted or is fake. And thus, in a trial of Lee Harvey Oswald, none of it would be admitted and Oswald would have been acquitted. And uh, over the years, he's gotten the ear of Oliver Stone and basically uh, between the two of them decided it was time to, uh, I guess, for Oliver Stone to issue a reply to all the critics of JFK to sort of prove them wrong. And Diogenio uh, claims that the work of the Assassinations Record Review Board, the ARRB, which declassified millions of pages of documents in the late 1990s, he basically claims that in those documents there is evidence of conspiracy. And that's what he wanted to bring to the screen in this new documentary series. Um, And, of course, Oliver Stone believed him. And, of course, those documents really don't show conspiracy, and that's why I had to write a book to uh, debunk all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just to be clear, too – I believe and you believe uh, basically there was no there was no conspiracy to kill JFK involving at least one of either the CIA or Lyndon Baines Johnson and the Joint Chiefs or the FBI or the mafia or any Castro Cubans or pro Castro Cubans or, you know, assassins from Marseille or, uh, you know, involvement from the KGB or anybody else. But there were. Uh, shortly after the, or immediately after the assassination, there were there was a cover up, or I guess multiple cover ups, uh, uh, from people, basically people and agencies involved in, uh, you know, CYA, uh, you know, covering their asses, and yeah. uh, this made it appear, um, 
that these actions, these sort of butt covering actions <laughs> immediately after the uh, uh, after the assassination made it appear uh, that a conspiracy to kill Kennedy looked um, or that there was smoke behind that. You know, there was fire behind the smoke. Yeah, behind that, that. Absolutely. I mean, that's a theory of my friend Paul Hoke. That basically, you know, the FBI had to cover up the fact that they destroyed a letter from Oswald delivered to the FBI office uh, saying to stay away from his wife, leave them alone. Uh, the CIA had to cover up the uh, plots with the mafia to kill Castro, the Secret Service. That they, everybody had stuff to cover up. Mm -hmm. And yes, there was so much covering up that it made you think that perhaps there was a conspiracy when, in fact, uh, there wasn't. Yeah. And... Uh... Do we know if the KGB was involved in fomenting this uh, this conspiratorial thought in the United States? Have they been, you know, uh, yeah. pushing that? Yeah, there's there's been at least uh, a couple of KGB operations in the in the United States to help convince people that the CIA was behind the assassination, and so they 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 actually sent to, in the 1980s they sent researchers a note purportedly written by Lee Harvey Oswald to a Mr. Hunt. Um, and, and they thought that that would link um, everything to H.L. Hunt, who was the oil man in Texas. But everybody thought that was perhaps linking it to E. Howard Hunt. Mm -hmm. the water the Watergate, yeah. Uh, but in fact, that, that was just, that was a KGB plot. And of course, there, there was also a potential KGB plot to, um, to say that the CIA was behind the hiring of Clay Shaw, which was Garrison's suspect in a World Trade Center in Rome. And that's a, a convoluted story, but a, it may have been a planted story in a communist newspaper in Rome, which eventually made its way to the mainstream press in North America. Yeah. And uh, actually, speaking of Clay Shaw, um, before, because uh, he's not really uh, a subject so much of this new book, but... Yep. Um, sort of set the record straight on Clay Shaw uh, because he's a guy who got really uh, the garrison prosecution of Shaw. I mean, there was such a uh, disgrace and really sort of uh, ruined the guy's life and uh, added him as a uh, as a homosexual in the in the late '60s when. Obviously, that's not really a great time to be known as a homosexual, not yep. even just a homosexual, but like a but a uh, uh, sort of crypto fascist uh, gay um, yeah. you know, like involved in this yeah. in this crypto fascist gay uh, assassination ring. Um, and then, you know, Stone sort of uh, lays that on pretty thick in the film. Uh, you know, with his uh, the Tommy Lee Jones character and uh, the uh, Joe Pesci character, the David Ferry character, and uh, Kevin Bacon. Is that Perry Russo? Is that who that's supposed to be? Kevin Bacon? Um, uh, no, or... Kevin Bacon is is a composite character of, uh, of Perry Russo and three other people ah, okay. in New Orleans. Yeah, so there's that one scene where it's like a flashback of like the three of them uh, like dressed up in like body paint and like dressed yeah, up just like cherubs and like walking each other around on dog leashes and was like, an sni like sniffing amyl nitrates yeah. and you know, that sort of yeah. stuff and which i mean really has nothing to do with anything um you know, with the assassination or anything like that 
Uh, but it's just sort of a way for Stone to uh, basically uh, basically pull off his own character assassination of of Clay Shaw. But like, who was Clay Shaw actually? And you yeah, know, his well, importance Clay Shaw was Clay Shaw was a businessman in New Orleans who started the World Trade Center there, or the International Trademark, which is what which was a trade center. And he was well respected. He was a man of the arts, uh, well liked around town, uh, uh, lived in the French Quarter. And uh, in 1967, Jim Garrison, the district attorney of New Orleans, decided to reinvestigate some of the leads in New Orleans about the JFK assassination. And he had two different leads. He investigated both of these leads, which really went nowhere. And he ended up um, manufacturing evidence through the recovered memory of Perry Russo, who was a young guy who lived in Baton Rouge. Uh, He recovered a memory that Russo remembered a an assassination party at which Clay Shaw was there and they discussed the, the assassination of JFK. And on the basis of that recovered memory, uh, charged Clay Shaw with conspiracy to kill JFK. Uh, the case took two years to go to trial. Uh, Shaw was acquitted in about 54 minutes. It would have been faster, but all the jurors had a pee. <laughs> and on the next business day, Garrison charged Shaw with two counts of perjury, which, um, were saying that he did not know Lee Harvey Oswald and that he did not know David Ferry. And that took two years for those charges to be quashed. Shaw then sued Garrison for $5 million in damages. Um, but unfortunately, he died of cancer in 1974 and the, the case never never went to trial. Yeah, I mean, this guy was, uh, uh, he was an officer, right? And in, in, in uh, the Second World War, I think he was a, a, yeah, he a was, major or something. He was a major working for General Thrasher in in uh, doing logistics for uh, for D-Day, and uh, he had won three medals from three different countries for his work. So he was a highly decorated officer in World War II. Yeah. Um. All right. So uh, glad we got that covered about Clay Shaw because I wanted uh, people to know that because, um, like I said, I'm pretty sure lots of people have seen the. Um, the JFK film, but I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, mo- somebody, somebody, should, somebody should actually make a movie about Clay Shaw <laughs> and what really happened. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be a good idea. Uh, I don't think Oliver Stone would be interested though. But um, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so to, sort of the new film because um, there's obviously we're not going to be able to cover all this stuff because there's a ton of <laughs> just uh, accusations that you have to. Uh, debunk here but let's start i guess with the um or actually before that let's start uh talk at the warren commission um because again most people think uh the warren commission uh was either sort of bogus to begin with or didn't really do that good of a job uh for what it was set out to do and uh people don't have a lot of uh many people don't have a lot of faith in what the uh warren commission uh its findings um so uh did the warren commission actually do uh do their job uh do a good job and you know or we hear that the 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 conspiracy theorists always say oh well the uh the conclusions its conclusions were preordained that you know because this was a cover-up so um, did the Warren Commission do its job, and was it, uh, it was its conclusions preordained? Yeah, the Warren Commission did a very good job, and the people who worked on the commission were 
honorable men who conducted a very honest investigation. Uh, if you talk to the people who worked on the Warren Commission, they would have loved to have found a conspiracy. Any of the lawyers on the commission staff, I mean, that would have made their career if they would have been the one who would have found the evidence proving a conspiracy. Uh, but they never found anything. I mean, the Warren Commission got the right answer. They did a lot of work. Unfortunately, um, they were limited by time. They had to come out with their report before the election of 1964. And so they had, you know, basically 10 months to do all of their work and write their report. They certainly could have used a lot more time and certainly more time later to uh, debunk allegations of conspiracy. Now, that they, they also, of course, were not told certain things. So the CIA did not tell the Warren Commission about CIA mafia plots to kill Castro. So that was pretty bad. It's, it's not, it doesn't reflect on the Warren Commission, but it was certainly information that um, they should have had. I think the, the biggest problem of the Warren Commission there, and the biggest mistake was one made by Earl Warren, where he decided that the commission, that all of the investigators should not have access to the JFK autopsy photographs and x-rays. And because they did not get forensic pathologists to analyze the photographs and x-rays, they had to rely on testimony of the autopsy doctors and other, uh, other technicians who were there. And it led to a lot of controversy over the nature of JFK's wounds. Mm -hmm. And that led to Mark Lane and other people going around the country claiming there was a cover-up. And had they gotten a team of forensic pathologists early on to do uh, their investigation of the autopsy material, um, they would have had clear evidence that there was only one gunman firing from the rear. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, let's get to the, the medical evidence and all the autopsy stuff, because uh, yep. there's lots of uh, stuff in the book uh, you write about, you know, the, the different claims here that, yep. oh, you know, the... Uh, <clears throat> The, they substituted another brain for JFK's. They, you know, the brain is too heavy uh, yeah, yeah. Because, because his brain was blown apart uh, by the bullet. Um, so the brain was too heavy, so it couldn't have been JFK's brain, which means they sub substituted another brain. Uh, you know, there was cerebellum coming out of a uh, an exit wound at the back of his head. <laughs> you know, so the, 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 uh, the problem, <laughs> all this the, kind of the stuff. The problem for conspiracy theorists is that the photographs and x-rays show that the left hemisphere of Kennedy's head was basically intact. The brain on the left side of his head was intact, which meant that he could not be could not have been hit from the right front. The grassy knoll, right. That's right. If he had been shot in the head from the grassy knoll, then the left hemisphere of his brain would have been blown apart and there would have been fragments. But there was none of that. And so they have to try and prove that the photographs of JFK's brains is fraudulent or it's a photograph of another brain. And so I, I have three sections on that, debunking all of the allegations about the brain. It is a true photograph of JFK's brain, and it's actually for a big – it's just proof that he was shot from behind. Yeah, yeah, and I just want to point out, as you said, uh, photographs. You had there's tons of um, pictures of uh, notes and uh, letters and uh, photographs and things like that. Um, uh, you know, FBI letters or memos, things um, uh, that are in the book itself, so the the reader can actually see uh, the actual documents you're you're talking about, and you know, yeah. so that you're not just you know making the stuff up and everything. So, 
Um, yeah, the the autopsy stuff um, sort of mind blowing. That uh, just all the stuff that it gets thrown out there, um, you know that. Uh, I mean, just weird stuff like you know Curtis Lemay uh, <laughs> directed the yep. autopsy and was like gloating over Kennedy's body, and uh, when you know he actually wasn't. <laughs> I don't think he was even present at the autopsy and um, uh, just uh, stuff like that. So uh, actually talk about a little bit about the LeMay thing, because LeMay's a guy who gets brought up a lot in these uh, 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 in these conspiracy yeah. claims that he was um, or that basically that either he knew of the conspiracy or had handed it himself or something like that. And, uh, so yeah, they're, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not quite sure of the role of LeMay, yeah. but he is the boogeyman in the four hour documentary series. He's one of the villains. And so they make two claims about LeMay. The first claim is on the day of the assassination, he was in Canada, um, hunting or fishing, but he was on holiday in Canada. So he was called back and he flew back. And the claim in the documentary series is that he flew back, to National Airport rather than Andrews Air Force Base. So he flew back to National to be closer to Bethesda so he can go to the autopsy. Um, the truth is, is that um, he was told not to go to Andrews Air Force Base because the orders from the Kennedy family and Robert Kennedy, they only wanted a few people at Andrews Air Force Base. They did not want a crowd of people when the body came back. So only uh, Maxwell Taylor, a few other people were there. That was it. So they ordered LeMay to go to National. Um, and so there's nothing controversial about that. But I, I showed the evidence. The evidence is clear. They also make the claim that LeMay was at the autopsy. And they have a whole variety of stories from just from one source that basically he was there. He was smoking a cigar. Um, he was told to put out the cigar. He refused and he blew smoke in the face of a Navy corpsman who was uh, who was one of the technicians to help with the autopsy. And of course, there's the only evidence for this is one person's testimony years later that he was there. Nobody else remembers him being there. Uh, the FBI kept a tally of who was there um, and they did not list him. They didn't see him. The, the autopsy doctors didn't see him. Um, and he's a noticeable guy. They would, sure. You would have noticed if uh, Curtis LeMay was there. So it, these two claims are shown to be completely false. Yeah, and just um, for people who might not know, Curtis LeMay at the time was the uh, it was the chief of staff of the Air Force. Um, he's a very well-known guy. He was a World War II uh, well hero slash boogeyman, depending on what your side uh, you know involved in uh, uh, bombing Japan. And uh, was head of the Strategic Air Command after the after the war, and uh, sort of a uh, a guy Kennedy himself didn't really have a uh, warm relationship with, um, especially after uh, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and all that. But um, so yes, yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a very well known individual in yeah, in, in 1963 hardline, America. Yeah, yeah, he was a hardline general. But as I show in my book, Kennedy decided not to take uh, political advice or, 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 or strategic advice from LeMay, but LeMay was a good organizer of the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And that was his value to Kennedy. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, let's get to the physical evidence then. Um, so, obviously, you're of the opinion. How, okay, so let me ask you, uh, percentage-wise, how certain are you that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin acting on his own accord uh, without um, any outside help and was present in the sixth floor of the Texas uh, School Book Depository in Dealey Plaza in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, and fired uh, the shots that hit and uh, wounded uh, Governor John Connolly and killed uh, John F. Kennedy. I'm 100% sure he was the lone assassin. The only question I would have is, is and we don't know the answer, is was, was there anybody in Dallas who was egging him on, who was trying to convince him to do it? Um, probably not because he was such a loner. Mm -hmm. He really didn't have that many friends, but it's certainly a very, very small possibility that somebody could have egged him on. All right. So let's get to some of the, uh, physical evidence then. Um, oh, I guess the, the, one of the big ones, or maybe the biggest one, biggest one is this, uh, chain of command conspiracy over the. Uh, it was a CE-399, which is the uh, quote-unquote magic bullet, which was found um, on a stretcher, I believe on a stretcher at Parkland Hospital. And, yeah. And um, uh, this, there are lots of um, conspiracies around this bullet that it was planted. Um, uh, I think in the, the JFK film itself, I think the Jack Ruby character or, you know, the Brian Doyle, but Jack Ruby is insinuated yeah. as the one who is in Parkland Hospital and just basically nonchalantly drops this uh, this pristine bullet, this pristine magic bullet, quote unquote, uh, on the stretcher. So uh, tell us the, the truth about um, all these claims about the. Uh, well, the, the bullet itself and the you know how it was found the chain of, uh, chain of custody with it all that sort of thing and, and, well ce399 uh, is the bullet that went through kennedy's uh neck and then through Connolly's chest through his wrist and, and and embedded in his thigh and then fell out onto a stretcher at parkland hospital and what the documentary series tries to do is it makes the claim that the chain of custody for the bullet from when it was found to when it was delivered to the FBI in Washington is faulty and that therefore um, at a trial, it could not be uh, introduced into evidence um, to convict Lee Harvey Oswald. And so one of the things that they try and show in the documentary series is that the initials of one of the FBI agents, Elmer Lee Todd, is missing you know, people initial the bullets as they get them, mm -hmm. as they pass them on. So they claim that the initials of Elmer Lee Todd were missing from CE-399. And they they based that on uh, a third-party researcher who had gone to the archives who claimed to have seen pictures of CE-399. And so I, I was looking at this claim, and I have a friend who lives in San Antonio, a really good researcher, Steve Rowe. And he was interested in looking at, at the pictures and see if he could find the initials. And I said, look, you, you know, in 2016, the National Archives published super high-res photographs of the fragments and CE-399. And you should examine those photographs uh, to see if you could find the initials. 
The problem is that those photographs are so high res that it, it you need a half a terabyte of space on your hard drive to download all the images, which oh, you then have to stitch together. Uh, <laughs> it was beyond beyond my capability even uh, for my computer skills. And so I hired a consultant to go and download all this stuff and stitch it all together. And I sent it off to Steve in a hard drive. And uh, it took him actually a day to get the viewer. You need a special viewer to actually look at these photographs. Um, and lo and behold, he found the initials. They're there. Very, very clear. And so we wrote up a paper. And what really astounded me about the documentary is that they did not go to these photographs. They didn't check their own work. They could have gone to these photographs and they could have checked it, but they decided just to go with the allegation without looking at the best evidence. And that's uh, that's how this documentary is is kind of dishonest. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, the famous backyard photographs um, showing Oswald holding the Manlicher Carcano. Um, uh, it's insinuated in, <laughs> or uh, it's or even in the earlier JFK film. Uh, they talk about that the, yep. the, the, the yep. photographs were fake. Um, you know, because the, the way that uh, the, sh the shadow in some of the in, in the photograph is incorrect and all that sort of stuff. And uh, my teacher, when I was taking that class, actually, we spent a lot of time on that photo. Uh, it's hard for me to remember now because it was, you know, uh, almost 30 years ago. But um, so that's something, I, I guess, that gets repeated in the documentary, the new documentary. So um, were those photos the famous one of uh, Oswald holding the rifle? Uh, uh, is that an actual photo or is that actually, uh, yeah. is that actually, is that actually Oswald? Yes, it's actually Oswald. There were at least three photographs taken in the backyard. Uh, his wife, Marina said that she took the photographs and this was studied extensively by the house select committee on assassinations. And they issued a very clear scientific report, um, on the photographs and why they are authentic. Um, there's also a really good scientific study from Dartmouth um, saying much the same thing. So I'm amazed that they actually brought this up in the documentary series because it's an old allegation. Mm -hmm. It's been, been debunked for decades now, but they bring it up again and they bring it up with some really sloppy work. They claim that, you know, there's a ring on Lee Harvey Oswald's hand and then all of a sudden the ring changes to the other hand. Mm -hmm. And what I try and show in my book is you clearly see that he was wearing two rings. He was wearing a wedding ring on one hand, and he was wearing a marine ring on the other hand. And there's just actually no mystery to this at all. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, they also go on that uh, uh, some of the stuff too, but, uh, about the rifle itself. Um, you know, the palm print on the rifle. Um, you know, was his palm print actually on the rifle? Blah blah blah. You know, was there an issue with the with the sling mounting on the rifle, with the strap of the rifle, uh, or all these rifle issues. So uh, talk a little bit about those, too. Yeah, again, the, what they really try to do in the documentary series, again, they, they try to impugn the physical evidence. So in this case, they, they're trying to say that, that the rifle, uh, the fingerprints weren't on the rifle, and the rifle is the wrong rifle, and, and Oswald, you know, the, the, there's a lot that, there's a lot that Diogenio has said in his books in addition to like, oh, it's not Oswald never got the rifle. I mean, they have to really impugn the rifle because 
the plain fact of the matter is the rifle was found on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. There were three cartridge cases that were found that came from that rifle. The bullet fragments came from that rifle. And Lee Harvey Oswald bought the gun. So it's an extremely incredible piece of incriminating evidence. And so they have to try whatever they can to sort of try and get that gun thrown out. And again, their purpose here is can we get this gun thrown out at trial? And uh, again, I think they're, I think their their attempts are pretty weak. You know, mm-hmm. they try to say the sling mount is incorrect, but it isn't. And they, you know, and the photographs, it's just, again, very, very weak, weak stuff. Yeah. And did the Dallas Police Department, did they, uh, were they basically in cahoots with Jack Ruby and let him in the basement so that he could kill Oswald to keep him quiet? Um, was Ruby involved in any sort of <laughs> any sort of conspiratorial plot, or did Ruby just do uh, what he did because uh, the reason he said he did because you know he uh, was angry about the, the killing of Kennedy yeah. and he didn't want to have uh, uh, didn't want Jackie Onassis or she wasn't Jackie Onassis and uh, Jackie Kennedy yeah. to have to uh, you know go on the stand and testify uh, about the murder in a trial for Oswald. Yeah. The the fact is it was an impulsive act by Jack Ruby. He happened to find himself at the Western union office, sending a money transfer to one of his strippers. And it was just about the time that Oswald was coming down to be transferred to the County jail. And so Ruby just walked down the ramp when, when one of the police officers was looking the other way and just came upon right time, right place, and killed Oswald. It was an impulsive act, which is why um, he came up with so many reasons. I mean, when you do when you commit an impulsive act, mm-hmm. um, there's no real reason for it. So, but but you typically try to come up with a reason after the fact. Yeah. So a, re- a retroactive Ruby said, justification. Yeah. So yeah. Ruby said that he did it because he wanted to show the Jews had balls, or he did it to save Jackie Kennedy from coming for a trial. Or he did it because blah blah blah, whatever. But he had to come up with a reason, and and uh, but in fact, it was an impulsive act, and, and he was slightly manic that weekend because of an ad that was in the Dallas Morning News on Friday morning, um, criticizing Kennedy, placed by a guy by the name of Bernard Weissman, a Jewish name, and mm-hmm. Ruby saw that ad, and Ruby was very very sensitive to anything that might uh, smell of anti-Semitism. And so after Kennedy was killed, he felt that perhaps maybe Jews were involved. Maybe this guy Bernard Weissman was involved. And he went to Bernard Weissman's post office box to see if he could find his identity. They wouldn't tell him. Uh, But the whole thing backfired because after Ruby shot Kennedy, the right wing, the John Birch Society and other right wingers thought that Jack Ruby, whose real name was Rubenstein, might have been part of a Jewish conspiracy. And he went completely bonkers and started to believe that perhaps there would be a second Holocaust mm. because of what he had done. It's a, it's an incredible story. Yeah. Oh, uh, what do you think of this? We always hear this about uh, uh, Kennedy was a victim of this uh, climate of right wing uh, hatred in in uh, it's sort of like that Dallas was the assassin itself. And that this, uh, uh, you know, this this uh, cauldron of 
of right-wing uh, animosity towards Kennedy and hatred and uh, that sort of thing is what uh, is what amped up Oswald, who uh, you know, who was a Marxist-Leninist, uh, that this climate of fear and hatred uh, led him to go and shoot John Kennedy. Well, that climate of fear and hatred in Dallas, which was very real, um, one of the leaders of that climate of fear was General Edwin Walker, who Oswald tried to kill. Mm-hmm. He was a bircher. Uh, yeah, so he was a very, very extreme right-wing general. Oswald tried to kill him. Uh, that was probably one of the reasons why Oswald bought his rifle. Um, he wanted to he wanted to go after Walker, um, but he wasn't motivated by the right wing. He was motivated. He was a left wing communist who basically saw the right, the extreme right, as a huge danger, um, and he was very, very angry with the Kennedy administration's um, viewpoint on Cuba. What really animated Oswald was Fidel Castro and the revolution in Cuba. And he was very angry that that the Americans were interfering and sabotaging uh, stuff in Cuba. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And speaking of the Cubans again, there's also they they make the claim in the book that there were multiple or in the film that there were multiple attempts on Kennedy's life, uh, including in Chicago and in Tampa uh, that they sort of aborted or. Um, or just felt, you know, attempts that just fell through. <laughs> yeah. About these, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, these it's, it's, too. it's a really amazing part of the documentary series, but they claim that there were, there were plots to kill JFK in Chicago and in Tampa. And then in both attempts, there were, there would be patsies like Oswald that would be picked up. If in fact they able, were able to kill Kennedy. I didn't know much about these allegations until the, the documentary came out, and I started to research it and found that there's actually no evidence that there was a plot in either city. Um, there were two um, there were two threats against Kennedy in Tampa by people who were sort of mentally challenged uh, that the Secret Service were aware of, but they weren't plots. And the only and the allegation of a plot in Chicago comes from a Secret Service agent. Abraham Bolden, who uh, was guilty of fraud in 1964, and there is no corroboration for his story uh, at all. It was investigated. It was investigated by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and they could not find any corroborative evidence of a plot in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, talk. This is an interesting story. The um, <clears throat> the uh, the guy who was allegedly the guy who was going to be the patsy in Tampa. Yeah, uh, Gilberto Lopez. Uh, <laughs> tell everybody about this because this story is is uh, and what you it's, found because this is yeah, it's uh, an amazing story. I mean, supposedly the the supposed patsy in Tampa was uh, a Cuban by the name of Gilbert, Gilberto Policarpo Lopez. And when I looked at his story, what was really clear was here was a young man who grew up in Cuba. His mother was American. Decided in his early twenties he would he would emigrate and live in in Florida. Uh, moved to Florida, um, could, didn't speak the language, couldn't really get a good job. He was working in construction. He got married. Uh, his marriage fell apart, um, and then he became very sick. He developed uh, epilepsy and had to be hospitalized and basically realized that uh, he needed to go back to Cuba, where his family was. Somebody, he needed people to take care of him. But he just happened to make his way to Cuba through Mexico City on the weekend of the assassination. 
And so he, when he went into Mexico through Laredo, Texas, the Mexican intelligence thought, well, this is kind of strange, a Cuban-American coming to, uh, to Mexico on the same day as the assassination or the next day. And, and he flew out of Mexico City to Havana. He was the only passenger on a plane. Isn't that strange? <laughs> and, of course, when I looked into it, I found out that basically the, only, the reason he was the only passenger on a plane was that he, he took a cargo flight. He would occasionally take passengers on a cargo flight. To, that's how he got to Havana. So there was really nothing to this story at all. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, all right, so we're getting close to the end here, I guess, wrapping up. So do you um, do you think Oliver Stone? Well, I guess he must obviously believe this stuff i mean i mean it it it's it, i mean it's basically a matter of faith like a religion with him at this point yep. it seems like uh, why do you think because um because he's not a uh dumb guy he's very well educated obviously uh, uh yep. you know um uh at times can be uh a brilliant uh filmmaker i mean some of his I, I think like Platoon's a piece of shit, but uh, but like Born in the Fourth of July is a great film and yeah. uh, or a very good film. And uh, I mean, JFK itself, again, I mean, everything in it is Looney Tunes, but it's uh, it's probably his best film. I mean, it's a fantastic piece of filmmaking. Um, why do you think Stone uh, just falls for any sort of um new conspiracy thing that just uh you know happens to come across his eyeballs well it's a hard one to really answer i think that that you know once you're in and he he really went in heavy with his movie jfk it's hard to come out and i think that he was very very anxious to sort of prove everybody wrong that he was right all along all you remember there was a firestorm of controversy when jfk came out in 1991 december 1991 and 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 he had spent a whole year defending all the minutia of that film um he really wanted to talk about vietnam but nobody wanted mm -hmm. to talk about that everybody wanted to talk about bullets and fragments and grassy knoll etc and right. so i think what what attracted him to this new documentary was the political angle in this documentary series which basically was that kennedy was not only going to get out of vietnam but he was going to usher in a new era of detente and peace and that he had to be killed and so it fit in with his worldview mm -hmm. um and here was more physical evidence to support what was in jfk so it was a chance for oliver stone to get back at his critics um, but he doesn't really know the case. He has to rely on somebody else to do the, the, uh, the thinking for him. Yeah. I mean, he, I think he even has the Donald Sutherland character as a, uh, Colonel X or whatever, uh, in the film say that like, oh, look, all the, the who and the where and all that is immaterial. Um, the, 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 the why question is the material question and the why is because they quote unquote um you know the the military industrial complex i guess and the cia wanted to get more involved in vietnam that was and so i, I guess he thought that was going to be the thing everyone um focused on uh, yeah right but it, obviously everyone focused on all the other crazy shit that he was 
uh, you know, uh, promulgating. But you, was he embarrassed by um, uh, by the the blowback the film got? I mean, just getting this stuff because um, all this stuff was sort of, I mean, pretty easily debunked. Um, you know, yeah, not so long after. Um, I don't yeah. think he was embarrassed. I think he was annoyed. I think he was annoyed. Like you, 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 you guys are petty. You know, you have me talking about all this minutia. You don't want to talk about the big issue of Vietnam. And so I think he was annoyed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, I guess exit question then, because we've already gone close to an hour. Um, basically, the uh, question I ask everybody at the uh, the end of the podcast, and that's, uh, you know, what would you, what would you like the audience to get out of this book, or uh, you know, what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from having read it? Yeah, I hope the, re- the readers will actually see the, the various techniques that conspiracy theorists use to try and convince people of, of, uh, of what they're saying. And, and the, in this case, the big thing, the, the, the elephant in the room is, is the whole issue of memory and the fact that a lot of the conspiracy theories rely on people's memories after 30, 35 years um, memories which are incredibly imperfect. And the issue of memory, which I comes through a lot in this documentary, is never mentioned. Well, I mentioned it, but I mean, it's never mentioned in the documentary. And they're using testimony of people uh, 35 years after the fact when they really can't remember what's, what, they've, what they've done. And I, I think what's really amazing is the Assassination Records Review Board actually spent a whole page in their final report talking about the issue of memory, um, and that's not mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, it, memories sort of – I was actually just reading an article about um, uh, when it was like the, the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. They released uh, basically uh, like a limited edition box set of the entire festival – and uh, so the guys who were compiling it um, and trying to figure out timelines and all that sort of stuff were, um, uh, you know, talking to some of the artists who were who were there, who were still alive and everything. So they, um, I guess they got into a very large argument with uh, Country Joe McDonald, the Country Joe and the Fish, because yeah. Country Joe was adamant that like he went on, uh, he played Woodstock on like the first day of the festival and they were like no everything that like all the evidence that we had like everything like you went on you didn't go on until the second day and he was like absolutely not i went on the first day blah 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 blah. uh i mean they just went back and forth on this stuff but i mean they did find that you know uh, he didn't even go on until the second day so i mean i mean something is so momentous as you know the biggest festival crowd you're ever going to play in front of this pop cultural event which uh i don't know if any people maybe there at the time thought it was going to be something that was going to you know sort of spawn this mythos that lasted you know half a century uh but it was still a pretty big deal and you think uh an event like that your memory would sort of be crystal clear on what happened and here he was saying that you know now i went on the first day when he absolutely did not go on the first day. I mean, so something that big, he misremembered. And, um, you know, so to think that these um, that these memories are just uh, sort of uh, these 30, 40-year-old memories are just sort of uh, foolproof 
or uh, yes. it's just sort of incredulous, you know. Yeah, your brain is not a video machine. Yeah, yeah, right. Totally. All right. Cool. So, okay, again, the book is Oliver Stone's Film Flam. I kept saying Flim Flam, uh, or I kept reading Flim Flam for like the first like yeah. couple of weeks I had the book, and then I was like, oh, it's Film Flam. I didn't notice, and then I was like, okay, that's cute. Uh, but yeah, so Oliver Stone's Film Flam, the demagogue of D Leaf Plaza, really, really, really great uh, piece of, um, uh, I guess we could call it scholarship on just going through. Um, all of these new claims that Oliver Stone and company are making uh, regarding the JFK assassination. I know there's probably a significant percentage of our listening audience who probably thinks there was some conspiracy to kill Kennedy. Um, I would just uh, hope that you would uh, check out this book, uh, give it a chance because it really just uh, takes the new, Oliver Stone documentary to the woodshed. And then I'd go, uh, I'd go out and get, uh, your other book on the trail of the, of the, of delusion too. Cause that one, um, you know, sort of does the same thing with the whole Jim Garrison, Clay Shaw, uh, new Orleans, uh, conspiracy angle, uh, that, uh, that stone made so popular with his earlier film in 1991. So uh, check out those two books, uh, especially this one, Oliver Stone's Film Flam, The Demagogue of Dealey Plaza uh, by Mr. Fred Litwin, who was our guest today. And Mr. Litwin, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, thank you also for doing uh, all this uh, yeoman's labor, um, <laughs> having to yeah. sift through all this crap and yeah, uh, respi- uh, reply to it. Cause I know, um, I know as a guy who writes for a living uh, that doing the response to the accusation um, is like the it's this the most pain in the ass thing to write um, just well, because I'm, you well, can... <laughs> I'm well compensated by the CIA. <laughs> yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's the it's the most pain in the butt thing to write because the accusation could just be something that uh, is a sentence or two long uh yeah. but to unpack everything in that sentence takes hours and hours and hours of work uh so i appreciate uh you doing what you do and uh writing this book uh and you know being involved in all this stuff with your blog and getting all this out there so that people can know uh the truth of what happened uh on that day in november 1963 and what happened to john f kennedy so thank you again for uh for doing all that and thank you for coming on the podcast yeah thank thank you very much oh no problem and again if you like this podcast please uh consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends and if you have any uh questions or comments or uh have any books you'd like uh me to feature on the podcast anything like that you can always reach out to me at uh, t benson at heartland.org that's uh, t-b-e-n-s-o-n at heartland.org and for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. Oh, actually, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Litwin. Is there any uh, social media or uh, anything else you want to uh, plug uh, before we go? Well, I'm on Twitter, at Fred Litwin. Um, and I'm on Facebook as well. But uh, the key thing is my website, on thetrailofdelusion.com. Okay, cool. All right, yeah. So, yeah, you can reach uh, me at my email address, which I just uh, listed. And, uh, again, the, the podcast is also on Twitter, so you can go there and check us out. Um, you know, like I said, if you have any questions, comments, anything like that, you know, feel free to 
give us a follow, send us a DM, all that stuff. Our Twitter handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So make sure you check that out. And yeah, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening again, everybody. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.